This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Will Leach, and this is the People Still Read Books podcast episode. You know, I honestly don't even remember. The This is the sporadic, occasional, every once in a while. We're supposed to have Dave Parker, uh, the former baseball player, in his book Cobra, which is very good, by the way, and you should buy. Uh, he was supposed to be on, but we had some connection issues, and I had some recording issues. It just didn't really work out. And uh, But buy his book. It's great. Uh, before you do that, buy my book, by the way. <laughs> my book, How Lucky, comes out on May 11th, and it's getting close now. Uh, and lots of stuff's happening. Keep an eye out on the internets for more news and excitement. But um, remind you, as always, to follow us at People Still Read Books. Email me, peoplestillreadbooks at gmail.com. Our guest today is Luke Eplin. Luke Eplin is the author of a really awesome book uh, about the 1948 Cleveland Indians called Our Team, the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. We actually share an editor, uh, the editor of How Lucky is the same editor of this book, uh, which is, uh, I had heard about this book, but that's what got me to actually read it. And it's terrific. <laughs> it's a really excellent book. It basically tells the story of, a, of, of four kind of major figures in the history of baseball, Larry Doby, Bill Veck, Bob Feller and Satchel Page, they all kind of converge on the last Cleveland team to have won a World Series. This is a really smart, well-written, fun book uh, that's fascinating uh, in many ways. And so you should get it. It's out. It's very good. Um, you should pre-order my book first, of course. Uh, uh, how lucky, uh, wherever you order books. Uh, but uh, on the whole, uh, this is an awesome book. And uh, you should listen to me talk to Luke Eplin, uh, author of Our Team. Hello. And I'm now talking to Luke. Luke, I forgot to tell you when we were discussing beforehand, I've already done your intro, so I don't have to do that now. I've pre-recorded it. I made you sound awesome, but you're about to make yourself sound even more awesome. So thank you for talking to me about your book, Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men in the World Series That Changed Baseball. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks for having me on. So I'm, I love this book for, for many, many reasons. It hits right in my strike zone. Obviously, it's about baseball, and I love baseball. <laughs> and and uh, I tend to be a, like a big fan of baseball. Like, I totally, really like it. And so uh, th- that's a strike zone there. But it really, you know, I it is the journalist in me, and I know that you, you are obviously a very skilled journalist as well. There's nothing I love more than like, hey, you know what? That story that you've only kind – like, you know, like the vague outlines of, and you know, like the little trivia question about, but you haven't actually really explored to find out what it was really like and what really happened. That's what I love about this book, about a, a, a team that I knew was a big deal, the 1948 Cleveland Indians, but had never really delved deep into, like, uh, this last time they've won the World Series, it's like they, they had Bob Feller and, and uh, Satchel Page, all, and all this stuff, but I never really, like, looked it deep into. And it is a fascinating book about something that, frankly... I'm just happy for you that you did this before somebody else did, because <laughs> it's such a great story. And and I and, I, and I'm tell, I, I'm I'm curious what initially inspired you. Did you just see this and be like, oh, this is mine before someone else can do it, or what? What kind of inspired you to 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 delve to delve to, so deep and tell this kind of incredible story? Uh, well, thanks, uh, Will. Uh, 
Not at all. I did not. Uh, I, I did not start with saying to myself, "I better do this before someone else does." Um, I came about it through a very roundabout way. I'm from Southern Illinois, a small town down there. My grandfather, during the World War II, uh, worked in St. Louis. Um, he was slightly deaf, and so he had he was 4F. He worked at an airplane factory in St. Louis. He used to hop streetcars after his wartime shifts and go to Sportsman's Park. He was one of those weird St. Louis fans that was a fan of the St. Louis Browns and not the St. Louis Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And um, so I used to grow up uh, hearing stories of the St. Louis Browns. And, um, of course, anybody that hears stories of the St. Louis Browns is eventually going to hear a story about Bill Veck, who was the last owner of the St. Louis Browns. It's uh, where he did a lot of the stunts that became sort of the most notorious ones, the ones that we really remember Bill Veck for, most notably taking Eddie Goodell, a little person, to the plate. Um, and so the original intention of the book was to, to write about the Browns. I wanted to sort of honor my grandpa, honor the, the place where I came from, and sort of see if I could tell a fresh story about the Browns. Um, but when I was doing my research for the book, I went back to Bill Veck's earlier tenure of the Indians. He was first the owner of the Indians before he was the owner of the Browns. Um, if you go to the NYPL, the New York Public Library, they have sort of bound copies of the Sporting News, the great baseball journal of the time, that you can sort of flip through like a novel. And so I read 1946, 1947, 1948, which was kind of Bill Veck's tenure there, and sort of just read it like a novel. And I kept seeing these sort of four names bubbling to the surface, Larry Doby, Satchel Page, Bob Feller, Bill Veck. And I was thinking to myself that the story is really here. Like, this is the, an integration story that I think I didn't know about. And I'm a huge baseball fan, too. And it was something that was kind of new to me. And through these four figures, you could tell it in such a in a way that perhaps hasn't really been framed through two white men and two black men that each sort of represent a different facet of the inter- integration experience that was happening at the time. And so that was really my pathway into it. And it wasn't until I was just really researching it that I was like, oh my gosh, this story is awesome. <laughs> like, I, I'm so excited to be doing this. Yeah, it feels like it should be like the every single time we talk about Cleveland, Cleveland Indians, soon to be the Cleveland baseball team, soon to be the Cleveland whatever they end up being called. Uh, it feels like this should be like the central, like the way that we think of Babe Ruth when we think of the Yankees or the think we think of San Mutual when we think of the Cardinals or, or uh, you know, sadness and failure when we think of the Chicago Cubs. Uh, it feels like this should be the story that the, the immediately, like, like this book should be like leading off the Cleveland team's bookstore. <laughs> like it feels like it should be everywhere. And I'm curious, why do you think, I want to get into some details of the story, but I'm curious when you re- obviously Jackie Robinson uh, and mm-hmm. the contrast of Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby a little bit, but like there's like, these are like Bob Feller and Bob and Bill Veck and Satchel Page and Larry Doby are not like minor names. <laughs> like a lot, a lot yeah. of major baseball people know these people for, for various reasons, but the fact they all converge on this team, that's also the last one, the, the last Cleveland team that won the World Series. I'm curious, like, that's why I kind of said, like, are you, were you just happy that you elbowed this out before someone else got it? Because it's such a fascinating story. And it, it, I'm curious, uh, and do you have any thoughts just kind of from your research of why this uh, has it been like this? Isn't like the thirtieth book <laughs> that's come back uh, about this team because it really I, I just feel, I feel so like kind of grit happy for you that like you got to take this story because it's such a good one. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I do think that uh, in some ways the narrative was lost. And I think the way that I told this book was to kind of put the reader right in the middle of it almost to not sort of just like jump ahead or jump behind or anything like that, but to sort of like retell it as though it were happening at the time, just to sort of give a sense of like how exciting this thing was and how this narrative is both sort of storybook and probable, the whole sort of nine yards there. I think in terms of why it's been lost, I mean, you can sort of look at various strands if you start pulling at them. Bob Feller um, was in his time uh, right up there with Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams in terms of the most popular athletes. And perhaps before the war, he was he was exceeding them. Um, and his star has fallen quite a bit for certain comments that he made toward the latter half of his life, um, certain certain sort of comments he did about integration and things like that that has, have caused his star to fall. Um, Larry Doby, unfortunately, kind of became uh, a footnote, as you said, to, to Jackie Robinson. The sort of Robinson story of breaking into the majors has become, it sort of doubles as the story of integration in baseball and eclipses all the other sort of narratives that were happening at the same time. And one of the sort of things that this book is trying to do is to show that like it's equally as meaningful to Larry Doby's story. And at the time in 1948, people thought whenever the Indians won the World Series that Larry Doby was going to be the one that was kind of going to eclipse Jackie Robinson. I mean, his potential was that great to be to be like that. Bill Beck, um, you know, becomes the owner of the Browns, does some of the more notorious stunts. And we kind of start to think of him as more like a P.T. Barnum like figure rather than the sort of pioneer that he is, in some ways, I think his Cleveland story is undertold. And whenever we think about uh, Bill Vec, um, because he becomes a sort of larger than life figure as as he leaves. And uh, yeah, there's just so many other sort of factors. And one of them being the fact that it happened in Cleveland and not in New York, um, things like that. And so really, the sort of the sort of thing I really wanted to do is just recapture the narrative here. And, uh, well, I hope I did it. <laughs> you did. Good, good work. It's yours. If I see someone else talk, if I say anyone even so much to say the names of any of these people, I will tell them, no, that is Luke's story. Uh, <laughs> yes, please please stay away. Yeah. Um, I actually, one of the things I think that really comes across kind of fascinating in the book is obviously Larry Doby, uh, not only is, uh, not only is Larry Doby's story different than Jackie Robinson's, but like the strategy that Bill Vick used to kind of get him in the majors is very different than what Branch Rickey did with Jackie Robinson. And I and I don't know uh, if it was, I'm curious your thought, having written about this and researched it, do you think, can you explain what it is and do you think it was the correct one? So Bill Vec, um, Bill Vec believed that the sort of uh, long drawn out process that Jackie Robinson had from the time that the Brooklyn Dodgers organization signed him, which was in October of 1945, to the time that he actually debuted on the Dodgers, which was in April of 1947, put quite a lot of pressure on Jackie Robinson because for 18 months, he was under the spotlight. He did, Robinson went for a year in the minor leagues with the Montreal Royals, um, where he had quite an an, an impressive uh, minor league season down there where he led his team to the Little World Series championship. Um, but he felt that, that 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 sort of drawn out process actually was detrimental to to Robinson. It would be just sort of better if integration happened all at once, almost like ripping off a Band-Aid. Um, he believed, Vec believed that that Brooklyn was the sort of right place for what they called the great experiment of integration to take place. It was a multi-ethnic sort of sort of borough. Um, he felt that the fans there would, would be would be great. 
would be good to have it. So he waited for, for, for Robinson to debut. But then he was telling sort of black sports writers at the time, most notably Wendell Smith, that, that Cleveland was going to follow soon thereafter if the results in Brooklyn were promising. But you shouldn't expect him to do what, what, what Branch Rickey did with Robinson. He told a reporter that one of these days when the Indians go onto the field, there will be a black player among them. And that was basically his strategy. He signed Larry Doby in early July of 1947. Larry Doby played one final game with the Newark Eagles, which was a Negro League team that he, he was on. On the 4th of July, 1947, Doby boarded a train uh, in Newark bound for Chicago where the Indians were playing the White Sox. And the very next day, Doby was on the Indians. He journeyed literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. No 18-month buildup, no nothing. It was just kind of like throwing him into the fire. And Doby really struggled. Doby said that that uh, the first 10 times or so he came to bat on the Indians, his teeth were chattering. He was kind of in a state of shock. And the clubhouse, the Indians clubhouse, uh, was very cold to him, if not hostile. The players themselves had not been prepped for this. They found out about integration just at around the same time Doby did. It wasn't like Vec was, was saying this to them for months, building it up and some stuff like that. So it was something they were going through uh, at the same time Doby was as well. So he had a really tough 1947 season. And toward the end, Bill Vec himself admitted that perhaps Branch Rickey had been right to give Robinson sort of time to acclimate and that his strategy was not as sound. Which is, to me, one of the things, so many things that work out so wonderfully with 1948. I mean, like, I think even Roger Hornsby had said that, like, that, that Dobie, if he were white, wouldn't even be in the majors after 47. Yeah. And, like, he was really just kind of, like, lambasted. And then 48 happens, and he's a, he's not only a star, but he's key to everything that, that they're doing. And, you, you know, you kind of tell the story of all four of these guys, even just before they kind of came to Cleveland. But what was the view going into? Into that year, did they? Was there a sense that uh, this was going to be a special season, or was it just uh, the start of just kind of a crazy ride that they kind of just tried to kind of stay on the stay on the horse the entire way? There was not a sense at all that this was going to be the Indian special season. Um, even riders in Cleveland at the start of 1948 were picking the Indians to come in third behind the Yankees and the Red Sox. Um, there was a sense that the Indians were very shallow in the outfield and that their pitching staff was thin beyond sort of Feller. Um, Larry Doby himself, there was there was all the expectations among everybody, even among Bill Veck, that that, that Larry Doby was not going to make the team, that he had had such a sort of tough year in 1947 that he needed sort of seasoning in the minor leagues. And Veck was doing everything he could to add outfield and pitching help. And he just was so limited in what he could do with trades and, and whatnot. So uh, the Indians' weaknesses were, were, were everywhere. They had no idea that a player like Bob Lemon, who had been a sort of infielder outfielder just two years earlier, was going to burst out of nowhere and win 20 games. They had no idea that someone like Gene Bearden, who was this knuckleballer who'd been sort of severely injured during during the war that Vec had traded for just kind of as a throw-in, was also going to burst out of nowhere and win 20 games. And of course, they had no idea that Larry Doby was not only going to make the team out of uh, after sort of an improbable spring training, but that he was going to become the exact outfielder that Vec was looking for uh, toward the end of the season, even though Doby himself had never played outfield until that point. He was a second baseman, but he just kind of learns it on the fly and has this really storybook season in 1948. In fact, the entire year for the Indians that year was storybook. So wh- when you, when you're, when you're kind of following this season long, how much, like, did you, what did you have any thoughts about the 1948 Cleveland Indians before you started this project? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I'm curious, like, obviously yeah. you're, you were a Cardinals fan, like, like all good hearted, 
what right-minded people. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, you know, to the, the, like how, like, did you find yourself as you kind of digging through the old copies of the sporting news, you had to just feel like almost unbelievable the number of things that were all compiling on itself. I mean, there's a playoff game at the end of the year. Yeah, just to, finish really the, just to find the American I, I, League championship. First, first it just all, seems almost absurd the, the number of things that all kind of Indians. came together I, uh, this one year. I, and I think kind of going in fresh helped me out a lot. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I know that everybody sort of thinks that 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 I started out with sort of the 1948 Indians and then worked backwards into finding these four people, but I didn't. I found the four people first: Vec, Feller, Page, Doby. And then I sort of built my way into the 1948 Indians. And as I was researching the team, I remember having to, to sort of stop myself sometimes and just be like, this can't be real. The way that the sort of symmetry between these four people is playing out, the sort of extraordinary excitement of this, this, uh, this season as it plays out, all the factors that you have together. I really felt like this was this could be the greatest baseball story not yet really <laughs> sort of fully fleshed out. I know that sounds arrogant, but like, I, and I'm not saying that I, I, I was able to write it like that, but I was like, man, imagine what happened if like David Halberstam did this book. Like, it would be incredible. There's so many amazing facets to this, this story. And so as I was researching it, I was just growing more and more excited. And how old is Satchel Page this season? He's 42 years old 42 years um, whenever <laughs> Bill Vec signs him. And uh, he, Bill Vec signs him midway through the 1948 season. Of course, you know, Satchel Paige sort of not knowing what his age is became sort of a, <laughs> a media phenomenon. Some people thought that he was in his 50s whenever, whenever he signed. But uh, we know pretty well that he was 42. And, uh, and Vec really signs him uh, in 1948 because the pitching staff – is struggling a, a lot, mainly because Bob Feller, who was the ace of the Indians pitching staff for so long, is having an uncharacteristically poor season. He's under 500 whenever Vec signs Page. And and I think Feller, I think there's a, because, you know, uh, Dobie's story is so compelling and and Bill Vec is such a character and Satchel Page is such a character. There's something about Feller who I think, as you kind of touched on, uh, had some, you know, perhaps um, uh, moments where you might uh, wish he would be, we'll call them shilling moments, uh, perhaps <laughs> uh, later uh, in his career where you want to just enjoy the baseball player and you realize that you can't. But I think you, you kind of can't make a compelling case for Feller to almost being even a little ahead of his time as well, at least when it comes to uh, the financial side of baseball. Yeah, Feller is one of the more entrepreneurial athletes around. Um, he, I mean, and he's he's like that from a very early age. He comes from a farm in Iowa. He has this extraordinary ability from a very young age. His father clears out a part of their pasture, builds him sort of a baseball diamond there. It's kind of like the original field of dreams. And then Feller sort of makes it into the majors at age 17 as a junior and starts setting records immediately. He ties the major league mark for strikeouts in a game and only his fifth ever start. He is a sensation. I mean, there's just no other way around it. And the fact that he comes from a farm, from a place that didn't have sort of electricity or running water, and sort of people like to sort of think of him as this sort of all-American boy who sort of lives by these all-American values, in some ways obscured the fact that Feller was also a sort of capitalist at heart. Um, one of the first things that he does whenever he's 17 is hire an agent and becomes this sort of person that makes money off of his own likeness and particularly his own narrative. He knew exactly how to spin that narrative. And so he is uh, he's barnstorming with Satchel Paige um, when he's only a teenager. And he's also... 
uh, the first athlete ever to incorporate himself. He's doing these crazy barnstorming tours that go across the country and making more money than any professional athlete has ever made off of them. He is he's somebody who's really sort of ahead of the time when it comes to like branding himself. And so it all culminates, all comes together at, at, at this time, and it, you go into this World Series, and obviously everything that comes with it. And I'm curious, what was the reaction? Like, did they, did everyone at the time realize, even before they win the World Series, that there's, like, this is something special? Like, were they covered that way, or were they covered as all these stories are kind of coming together, and at the end of the year, you're like, oh, wow, they won the World Series, that's really historic. Like, like I always think of... Uh, that horrible, uh, terrible thing that happened in 2016 that ruined uh, much of life on the planet for the next four or five years, which is, of course, the Cubs winning the World Series. Mm. And you look at that team at the beginning of that year, like that, they were people were talking about the Cubs all year. Like clearly, that was the team that in 16, like they were the exciting team. It was kind of like the 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 Cubs version of the Super Bowl shuffle team for the Bears. It's the one you're watching all the way through. Was that the case? Uh, in Cle- was that the, was, was the team covered like that all year? Did they did everyone realize that? Oh wow, the personalities are happening and covered accordingly, or did they just kind of sneak up on everybody? Um, there were two sorts of reactions in Cleveland. One was that the Cleveland fans were refusing to sort of believe what was before their eyes. The Indians got off to a tremendous start in 1948. They held in first throughout much of the first half, but the fans were just booing the team mercilessly. Anytime that sort of an error happened or sort of a mistake on the field, there was so much booze. And it was because the Indians had sort of teased the fans so much before. The Indians had a tendency to sort of charge out of the gates in April and then just kind of wither away in, in, in August. And so fans were sort of shielding themselves behind booze to the extent where Bob Feller would later say that he, he wished all their games were on the road because he felt like the, the road fans were easier on them than the home fans. <laughs> um, and so they just, they didn't want to get sort of their hopes up only to have their hearts ripped out, but they were turning out at extraordinary numbers. I mean, 75,000, 80,000 fans to these games. It wasn't like they were, they were disbelieving. They were just kind of sh- shielding themselves. But at the same time, it was kind of undeniable to note that like everything that was happening in that year was coming up roses and like it just seemed like everything bill veck was doing from you know sh- shifting larry doby into the outfield to uh to trading for gene bearden to signing satchel page which was a tremendously risky move that uh that ended up you know working out so well hank greenberg later said that bill veck who was a man who was losing his hair at this point used to sort of like squirm his his fingers through his hair and little strands would fall out and he'd pick them up and he'd be like it's growing back. It's growing back. It just kind of felt like everything was, t- was coming up roses that year. And so there was this sense that somehow that even though the Indians kind of had a swoon there at the end, it, it was going to come back. They were going to win. And so by the time they got to the World Series, everybody picked the Indians to win. It would just, it, it, they were a team of destiny. Vec, well, I'll close this before I talk to you about the process of the book a little bit. Vec is such a fascinating character, and he's thought of, I think, as you kind of point out, because of the the brown stuff and the white sock stuff later on. Like he's like he's thought as like this almost like clown print. Like Bill Murray is always rumored to be playing him in this theoretical movie that uh, that that I'm assuming is never going to happen. But like like Bill Vec is just this character, but like this is. Like he's a champion here. This is the thing I've seen of these guys. There's something about him that I think it gets forgotten because he would do all these kind of promotional things, and and his family obviously as well. That like it's forgotten. Like this was like a pretty great baseball mind. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I, I've I've seen a lot of people say this and talk about this. They they refer to Bill Veck as sort of the P.T. Barnum of baseball, and I think that that's a real disservice to his legacy. I mean, the sort of idea that P.T. Barnum had that a sucker is born every second is, is just. 
not how Vex thought about it. He just really thought that that sort of the bread and circuses that he was offering could coexist with the competitive play on the field. But if you took away the competitive play, the bread and circuses wouldn't work. And I think that you almost saw this with his Browns tenure. He couldn't sort of replicate the attendance numbers that he had in Cleveland. And so he really did believe that 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 uh, the entertainment was good to sort of keep fans coming out and, and entertain and stuff like that. But if you didn't give them a, a good product, they were going to sour on you and, and assume you were just doing this for cynical reasons. And so he was a really sound baseball man who came into Cleveland in 1946, and the Indians are a sixth-place team. And he builds them into a championship contender within two years. And by building, it wasn't – I mean – if if Vec hadn't bought that team, the Indians wouldn't have won the World Series that year. I mean, there's just no question about it. Vec literally built that team. He did all these incredible trades. He integrated the team. He uh, he approved things like Bob Lemon turning into a pitcher. He was a, an extremely sound baseball man, and that has been the thing that that people are overlooking. Okay, let's talk about the process of this book. Did you how much how much did you have? Uh, I, one thing that I, I did differently with uh, my book, how lucky, which is out in a week and a half, uh, is, uh, one thing I did differently with my book is with this and the other one, this is the first time I wrote the whole thing and then tried to sell it. Uh, and I hadn't done that before. What was your process on this? Uh, uh, that, that, how did you, when did you start trying to put this thing out to find someone that would publish it? I didn't have a lot, um, I, I I want to tell a quick story that involves you here. Uh-oh. Um, I Uh-oh. whenever I when I was still first thinking about writing a book, I went to an event um, that Chad Harbuck and you were doing in Brooklyn mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. a book called Pitching in the Pinch by by Christy Mathewson. And uh, Chad Harbuck had been my very first editor ever. Um, oh wow! He, he accepted a piece that eventually got into M plus one. And that was the first published piece I ever had. And so I wanted to meet him because we'd only sort of act interacted on there. And I'd always sort of be interested in you because you're from Southern Illinois, which I am Mm -hmm. from as well. Um, And so I went to that event and I really got interested in pitching in a pitch. I bought the book. I ended up pitching a story about it that got picked up by the, by the New Yorker online. Um, From that piece in the New Yorker that came from your event, I got my agent and uh, my agent read that piece, contacted me, said, do you want to write a book? I said, sure. We started talking about Bill Veck. Um, and, uh, and it sort of came, became obvious to me that it would be a very tough thing to sell a book about the Browns. And I didn't think that that was really possible. Um, I then was going through the research, found this Indian's angle, and uh, went to a friend's house uh, who is a writer, and Noah, who is became my editor, was there. I'd never met him before. I knew he was an editor. Um, we were talking. He'd heard through my agent that I was writing a book about baseball, and he asked me what it was, and I explained the sort of Cleveland book to him, and he was just like, write up a proposal. I think we've got something there. And so I already had kind of a, I had a, a leg up on, on the process already from having sort of met him and stuff like that. So... Uh, so yeah, it probably took me like four months to to write up a, a proposal based on those four men. But I, I hadn't done the research yet, and so I didn't know how exciting 1948 was. The original proposal was the book was going to start in 1947, the minute that Larry Doby integrates the Indians, and then sort of go blow by blow through 1947 and 1948. And that is not what the, the book ended up being. 
Yeah, to further our crisscrossing through each other's lives uh, from back in Brooklyn, Noah is now my editor on How Lucky. <laughs> he is now my editor, and uh, uh, he's, he's over at HarperCollins. I, I, I think he, because I, I, I think did he leave in the process of this book? He did. Yeah. 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 That's that's happened to me before too. I know. Oh well. <laughs> yeah, that happened with Army Wedding. I know how it goes. I think that, and I will put it this way: Noah still talks about your book a lot. The people that left did not talk about my book. Oh no. <laughs> so Noah's got your back. Noah's got that's your back awesome. in a way that they that they never did. Um, but yeah, so I always I you know, I remember doing doing that event, and I love the art of fielding. I think that's a brilliant book, and I think he's a wonderful writer. Yeah. And uh, but I was you know I I was still just kind of. I, I had been away from Deadspin for a few years at that by that point, but I was still kind of Deadspin guy. So mm. I was very, very nervous about like, wow, there's going to be so many smart people and so many literary <laughs> people. And I'm going to be like, look at pictures of Jay Cutler. And uh, this, I was worried that was going to be the vision uh, that everybody had. So the I really thing, loved that the event. The thing that I remember you about that event was somebody asked a question like, what what players would be would have been really good playing back in Christy Matthewson's time? And you said Kyle Loesch. And um, you said Kyle Loesch because you said anybody would have been good back in Christy Matthews' time. And so you were using Kyle Loesch as an example. And that always stuck with me. It's true, right? Like this, yeah. this, the baseball writer Joe Sheehan talks about this all the time that, like, you know, if you were to bring Babe Ruth today and to put him at the plate, he would see like a middling rookie league curveball and would run screaming away from the plate, right. yelling about witchcraft right. and, uh, and all of these right. like terrible things. So uh, I always find that kind of fascinating. Like the idea that, like, his argument is like the best baseball player of all, all time is Mike Trout, and the best pitcher of all time is Jacob deGrom because right. whoever the best person is right now, they're the uh, best. <laughs> is, that, is that person? I think it's a good point. Uh, so, you, by the way, I want to get your story a little bit because you are from Litchfield. You're, you're about an hour and a half, a little over an hour and a half from Mattoon, where I am from. Yeah. My fa- my mother's family uh, every year has the Dooley. My mother's maiden name is Dooley. They have the Dooley family reunion in Nokomis. Just oh, over by you. Wow. We, we, we do every three years. We have to. I have to go back every three years because I always. My mother's getting older now, and she can still host the event. But now, my she needs more assistance from me to help organize everything. So every three years, I spend um, uh, Labor Day in the Comus uh, wow. for the for the Dooley family reunion. So I'm back there all. My 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 uh, my mom's from Mawikwa, which is over by uh, yeah. Decatur. So that is our neck of the So I we know that very well. I'm curious. What's your story? Like like when did you leave uh, our, our central Illinois uh, uh, world and uh, and get yourself out? To to, to New York City. I went to Washington University in St. Louis for college. I majored in English. Um, and like a lot of people that do that, I had nothing, no idea what I was going to do. Um, so I made uh, the choice to uh, pack up two suitcases and move to New York. So I moved here without any contacts, without any job. And I figured that I could, I could sort of make it work for a few months, maybe do some odd jobs and stuff like when that. When is this? What year is this? This is 2000. This is two months after 2001. Okay. I mean, after September 11, 2001. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I'd never, I think I'd been to New York one time and maybe spent like two or three days there. Um, and so I lived in a YMCA for a while and then eventually found an apartment in the East village. And, uh, within like, I think three months I got a job at random house in their managing editorial department. And so I did that for a while. I ended up getting a Fulbright scholarship um, I, so I moved to Chile for a while and I lived there and, uh, came back and did, a, uh, got into a PhD program at Brown university. And, um, so I, I was going to go the sort of academic route. And, uh, I remember one of the professors told me that my writing was too clear 
and that <laughs> he said that if you wanted to sort of make it in this world, you needed to immerse it, you needed to study the way that that we wrote more, sort of use the language that we wrote more, and sort of adapt my writing accordingly. Woof. And that was a real <laughs> eye opener for me, and I just kind yeah. of realized that I, I that I, I did not want to write like like that, and uh, so I dropped out. And I thought that uh, I'll just see if I can write on my own. So then I came back to New York, and here you are. And yeah. now, uh, I'll, here I'm. I'm. Uh, do you ever get back? Do you ever? Do you ever make it back to? Oh, I go back all the time. My dad is your family. Your dad, family still there? Yeah, they're still there. Um, my dad had season tickets to the St. Louis Cardinals forever, and so. Um, so yeah, we always were going to, to Cardinal games. I grew up going to, to Cardinal games all the time. I'm still a diehard Cardinals fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to the, see them at, whenever they play the Mets at any time they come to New York. But uh, my dad was the one who really instilled the, the love of, of baseball with us. Like I, I, you know, I read David Halberstam's uh, October 1964 just over and over as a kid. I, just, I love that, that sort of book. How uh, are you? I'm frustrated with this current Cardinals team. They feel like a team that's just going to be bobbing around 500 all year, irritating me. Yeah, they're they're a little top heavy. Um, yeah. It's it's not the it's 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 not the best team right now. But uh, yeah, you know, my dad was at uh, Game Six of the 2011 World Series. Oh. Um, he was at the seventh game of the 1982 World Series. Um, yeah, he's he he is a dyed in the wool Cards fan. Good man, good man. Well, of course, that's, that's all right-minded, good-thinking, good-hearted people. All right, okay, uh, the last question I ask everybody uh, is, uh, what was your unboxing like? That moment when you got, when your first copy, I, uh, one thing I've really kind of not gotten across, by the way, about your book is it looks fantastic, by the way. Like, it yeah. really is, like, very well-designed. It's got a, it's got a wonderful, uh, wonderful jacket. It, and I, it's, just a, it's just a really, like, it's just a solid, uh, really good-looking book. And what, I'm, what did that feel like when you, you know, this is your, you know, this is your first book. You know, what did yeah. it feel like when you, when you, open this up you open that box and you get to and you get to open all these things up this book took me a long time to write i, I think i worked on it for four years or something like that because i just didn't know what i was doing uh, it took me a long time to figure out what to, how to write a chapter and and how to get the narrative down and i think the, the first draft was over 500 pages so it just took a long time and so i i really didn't know if i was ever going to see that end point and so honestly whenever i unboxed it the 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 emotion i felt was relief just like yeah. I can't believe this this is over this happened um you know I'll, I'll know better next time but uh yeah it it was like I, I just finished my first marathon even though I hadn't trained for a marathon <laughs> <laughs> well well it's a wonderful book and seriously congratulations on it and I, I'm telling you man like Central Illinois, completely <laughs> underappreciated nationally yes. as a place of, of, of making stuff happen. Such great would, cuisine, such great baseball. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> listen, I got, I got, I'm, I, would, I will, I will look up, uh, I will holler at you that the next Dooley family reunion in Nokomis. Hey, and that uh, sounds great. Uh, there's, it's like there's like the little park downtown. I don't remember the name of the park. It's a very at the time when I was a kid, it was the biggest park I'd ever been to in my life. And then I went back a couple of years ago, and I was like, wow, like there's like there's like one. Sad swing set, <laughs> and uh, that is uh, that's. I guess that's part of what happens when you leave us. That's, that's and go it. Yeah, somewhere else. Um, I right, well, congratulations on everything. This book is terrific. The book is our team: the epic story of four men in the World Series that changed baseball. Luke, it is an honor uh, to get to chat with you about it. Continue good luck with the book and uh, go Cardinals. Thanks, Will. Go Cards. Mm-hmm.